Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf, and thanks for joining me today. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with a poet and journalist whose very first novel, just a couple months ago, won the Philip K. Dick Award for Distinguished Science Fiction. Meg Elison, author of the book of The Unnamed Midwife, I am so glad to have the chance to talk with you today. Hi, Rob. It's nice to talk to you, too. Thank you. Congratulations uh, on the award. Thank you. It was a very, very exciting time. Uh, the people at No Westcon were incredible. It was one of the best-run conventions I've ever been to. And uh, the award itself was just such a, a head-spinning, overwhelming honor. It was one of the best times of my life. Yeah, it must have been. It must have been, I mean, to have your, your, your first book uh, recognized in that way, uh, it just must be such a gratifying feeling. It's extremely gratifying. It was also completely unexpected. I was up against some really talented writers with good work and a whole lot more PR behind them. I have a very small press, and I, I really thought I was going just to have a good time and to meet people, and I had no, no inkling I would win. Well, maybe we could, you could tell me a little bit about the journey to writing the book and the journey to publication. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I had the idea uh, during finals, actually, my junior year at Berkeley, and I knew as soon as I had it that it was going to be big and I, that I would, have to, I would have to sit myself down and write it. But I, if I started it, I wasn't going to get any studying done. I wasn't going to pass my finals. It was going to be bad. So I made myself wait. I waited about two and a half weeks. So I got through finals. I did very well and no problem academically. And then the day my finals ended, I had my last one. I was at it noon. I went home. I sat on the edge of my couch with my laptop on the arm. And I wrote 12,000 words in a sitting. Wow, 12,000 words. That's one of my best days on record. I don't usually write that fast, but uh, that's sort of my, my literary backlog or my literary constipation is what I tell my friends. So all at once. And then I was very lucky that summer I got accepted to the Berkeley Writers Workshop for creative writing over the summer. So I got to show those first you know, 15,000 words to uh, a couple of pros. Uh, the current Stegman chair at Stanford was one of my instructors, and I had a great group. So I got workshopped right away, and that, that really put so much into the book coming together. And um, had the, has the idea evolved then over time as you, as you worked on uh, finishing it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I would come up with things that I hadn't considered before. Uh, out of some research or out of my crawling across Google Maps to see what the road would look like to somebody traveling in that world. And you know, these things would suggest themselves. And although I think most writers have an idea of where their story or their book is going to go, you don't want to control it completely. You want it to get, gather strength organically like a living thing. So I, I let it grow and it became something very different than I had originally envisioned. And, and what about getting it published? Was that difficult? Did that happen quickly? Uh, publishing is a rough business, as everybody knows, and uh, nothing happens quickly. Um, what I did was I pitched it to agents for, uh, I mean, I want to say a long time, but I guess in the publishing world it really wasn't that long. And I didn't get a lot of favorable response, and I got a lot of no response. And I had a previously existing uh, relationship with Sybaritic Press because I had published in several anthologies with them, and I, I know the editors there very well. 
sorry, I was at a party and I mentioned that I was pitching a novel and they asked to see it. So I was very lucky in that I was able to access a publisher directly without representation. And they were very enthusiastic about it and asked for it immediately. And what's it been like uh, in terms of working with the small press? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are pros and cons. There are pros and cons. Um, it's My small press is two women in Los Angeles, and they both have day jobs, and, and they don't have a lot of money or time to throw at their properties, although they're very good editors and good publishers. So much of the work that would be done by an agent or by a bigger publishing house as far as uh, promotions and arranging interviews and getting press releases out has fallen to me. So some, in some ways, my experience has been like that of a self-published author, although I've been lucky not to self-publish. And, and uh, they've hand, ha- handled the printing and some of my contacts with the outside world, but for the most part, I've done it myself. So it's good because I've learned a lot about the business doing that, and it's not good because no one listens to a writer on her own. Well, it certainly must help that you won the Philip K. Dick Award. That has definitely opened a lot of doors, yes. I've had more, more interest from the publishing sector, more interest from news outlets. I, it has greased the wheels in every way. Well, so let's talk about the idea for the book. Why did you, why a midwife? And I guess I would ask, why is she also unnamed? Or though I guess I should say she's not exactly unnamed, but she goes through a series of different names through the course of the book, and she, she never really tells the reader uh, in her journal, or the omniscient narrator never does either, uh, what her original name ever was. So in that sense, she is she remains um, a mystery. She is a mystery. Uh, she's many-named is how a lot of people have described it to me. It was a, a combination of things. I think all writers just collect the things that they like the best from books that they've loved. So uh, I loved books about midwives. I, met, I read uh, Chris Bojalian's midwife books. Also, one of my very best friends is a midwife, so I had very good access to information and to stories, and I was inspired by what she did and how she did it. So that, that started to percolate. And then I thought about books where the, character, the main character didn't have a name. Uh, the protagonist of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca goes unnamed throughout the entire novel, and it's incredibly artful how she does it. And it all leads back to the fact that the main character is not important because she lives forever in the shadow of something else. So I thought I could apply that to the apocalypse pretty easily. I mean, we fall out of our names when the world ends. So I, I, it made sense to me that she would lose it. And then as I went further along, I started thinking about folklore and mythology and fairy tales about the power of a true name, like Rumpelstiltskin, and what it would mean for someone to know it and how she would never want to hand that to somebody else and what the world has become. And so let's also talk about why you chose to write about uh, the apocalypse. Not that that's an unusual theme, but um, just your own personal uh interest in that or why you were drawn to that subject of course yeah it's, it's very much a, a subject of the moment god knows it's trendy right now the dystopian ya and and apocalypse novels in general so i've always been drawn to them uh, i love a lot of the classics of the genre i love a canticle for Leibowitz, uh, stephen king's the stand i had just before i started this book i read brian k vaughn's why the last man which is an excellent excellent gender-based apocalyptic uh, graphic novel story and why the last man is kind of the reverse of my book every male animal including humans on earth is wiped out except for this one guy and his monkey and i was thinking you know if this were the opposite if there was one female animal or one woman left on earth she'd be dead in a week and you know everything sort of contributed to that uh in in addition i grew up in some pretty crazy evangelical churches and uh they hammered on us about the end of days in the book of revelation and it 
it gave me nightmares and it made me always think about the fact that the end was nigh and that it was going to be bad. And I think that stuck with me my whole life, even though I, I shed the, uh, the ideological parts of it. Well, uh, that's very interesting. I mean, it's sometimes hard not to think that the world, you know, when we look at the environment or, I mean, there's always seems to be a reason to think that the world could come to an end and, or at least not the whole world, but, you know, the way it's... the way we know it. Exactly. And so in your book, you you chose an epidemic. um, And it's interesting, I find that it's, you know, you don't go into the details of that. It's really, the book is really focused on what happens afterwards. And... um, so I thought that was interesting. Your interest uh, was survival post, post-apocalypse. I think it's more fun to focus on the survival of a character or a host of characters than the breakdown itself. Because the reality is once we lose telecommunications, no one's going to know what happened or anything about how it happened. I was thinking about the way things happened during the, uh, the early 20th century outbreak of the Spanish flu, which is one of the deadliest epidemics in, in recent history. And I was thinking about what that would have been like if they had had the kind of communications that we do or the kind of air travel that we do. It would have spread much faster, but they would have understood it much sooner. So you, you add or you strip away these resources and these advantages, and epidemics have a lot of different powers to them. So uh, the idea that anybody would have uh, a fully informed story or a narrative of how the world came apart seemed ludicrous to me. There was no way that story would get out. And it was interesting that a lot of people carry their phones with them as almost like talismans because obviously they didn't work anymore, their cell phones. And yet it was sort of a sign of, of how dependent we are on them now and how utterly useless they would be in a, in a, in a flash if electricity or the, the links you know, connecting in that sense, I'm totally talking about myself. I'm completely addicted to my smartphone. It runs my life. And I, I thought about the times when, you know, it's completely out of charge or I can't get a signal and I still hold on to it. Like it's the thing that's keeping me alive. So I tried to imagine, you know, if the world had ended, I, I wouldn't throw it away right away. I would probably hold on to it for a little while like a security blanket. And it's interesting that the midwife, uh, her focus, you know, when I saw the title midwife, I thought, oh, she's going forth and trying to you know, repopulate the race and uh, facilitate birth. But really, and I don't think this is really giving away too much at all, I mean, her focus is on discouraging birth, basically. She's, she's finding birth control, and the few remaining women she can find, she's encouraging them to, to take it. A lot of that was an outgrowth of my conversation with my good friend, the midwife, and the midwives that she's introduced me to, who are all amazing people. And they're all, every one of them, in love with the smell of newborn babies and utterly awed by the act of birth itself. But for the most part, their day-to-day work is more about reproductive health and reproductive justice and getting birth control into the hands of women who are oppressed or kept out of the information that keeps them safe. So when I ask them what they do, the first thing is they say is, I catch babies. And it's amazing. And it's like seeing the world made new. But if you like, get them talking a little bit longer, they help women out of you know, reproductive coercion or they give people their first IUD or they explain how a woman got an STD because she may not understand that. So the, 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 more, the bigger part of what they do is not the delivery of babies, although that's how the world sees them and that's how they want to see themselves. That's not the majority of how they run their days. And, and there's an extra layer in the book, of course, where, I mean, it seems like the women who have survived, if they do, in fact, get pregnant and give birth, that's when they'll, they end up dying, even though they've survived the first, the initial epidemic, and the baby ha- dies as well. 
That's exactly right. I wanted to raise the stakes. I wanted to make the act of getting pregnant even more dangerous than it is now. And it's still dangerous. We're still looking at one in eight women dying globally in childbirth. And I, I thought about just ratcheting that up a little and what it would look like. And let me just say, I mean, men don't come off so great in the book. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you, do you think that's a function of the circumstance that you set up where there are, it sounds like there are hundreds of men for every surviving woman? Uh, or or do you think, well, I mean, basically, if, if, if it had been reversed and the same was true with hundreds of women for every one man, you know, would women have be treating that, that lone man the same way, you think? And in this case, often, I mean, it's it's really horrific what happens. I mean, men basically enslaving the few women they could find and treating them as uh, sex slaves. I did struggle with that. I was I was I tried very hard to create some sympathetic male characters who were capable of looking at the world through the lens of something other than slavery and something other than you know their ultimate power. But it was it was hard because I was thinking about the way desperate circumstances change people into desperate animals. So I think in a in a situation where everything was reversed, if the numbers of men were as greatly reduced as they are for women in my book, I don't think things would be fun for those men. They could absolutely begin to be looked upon as property. I think it's slightly easier based on you know the weight of history and, and the way women have historically been treated in almost every society for them to become property because they're a little less than that now or a little more than that now. But for men, I do think it would happen. It would just happen in a different way. And, and uh, you're absolutely right. It wasn't that, that long ago that even in, in the United States, women, women were legally property. That's exactly it. And in many places in the world, it's still very much that way. And do you think, um, I got the sense that uh, the way the characters, the characters in the book, you know, it was, it was almost like a pack thing. If there were more than a few men together, they became very competitive and they were the most abusive to women. But if a lone man came along, he tended to exhibit some of the more, you know, gentler, or compassionate qualities. It's been said more times than once, you know, a person is smart, a person is compassionate, a group of people is stupid and mean and dangerous because we often fall to our lowest common denominator or we follow the first strong voice of leadership, even if that leader is a fascist. So I, I, I think that's pretty true of, of dynamics among people as I've seen it. Although, of course, there are exceptions where people, you know, work by consensus and focus on intentionality and just in, in the apocalypse where everybody's struggling, it's, I find it less likely that that's how it would be. Let's talk a little bit about sex and sexuality, actually. I mean, birth control is obviously a theme of the book, but with that comes sex and sexuality. And the midwife herself is an interesting person. It sounds like she's had relationships with men and women before uh, the epidemic. And she also doles out advice about sex, in, in particular to one lead male character who happens to be a Mormon. So it, it makes it a, a particularly interesting conversation, I think. And the sex advice felt very real and very practical, but it's also not the kind of thing that usually crops up in a lot of science fiction. It's very true. Uh, I talked to a lot of people who were involved in public health and sex education, and I asked them if you could cut through rhetoric and if you didn't have to kowtow to anybody's requirements of explaining the sacredness of sex or the importance of waiting until marriage or or anybody's expectation of how it's supposed to be, and you could focus on just the real meat space fact of how sex works, what would you say? And a lot of what the midwife gives out of sex advice, especially to Honus, comes from that and comes from, frankly, my own real-world experience. That's how I tend to think about things, although I try not to, pr- to project myself too much into the protagonist of this book in that instance. 
She comes from me and the people that I've talked to who are educating on the subject. And um, she's a really interesting character in terms of uh, the decision she makes about survival because uh, where I think someone might tend to want to be part of a group for protection, even when people seem reasonable. I mean, she finds this group of Mormons and they seem relative to some of the other savagery that she's seen to be maintaining a certain kind of order. Uh, but she doesn't trust. She she decides it's better to be by herself. That seems to be the decision she makes most of the time. And, um, and I thought that was interesting as well. I, I don't know if there's anything you, you could say about that. Yeah, I, I one of my favorite things about apocalypse novels and, and stories of, of what happens after things fall apart is that if a, f- a small group of people are thrown together, they come to love one another and they come to depend on each other in the way that all humans depend on human contact because we're a social ape. And, uh, and I started thinking about what it would be like if the only people you could find were just people you couldn't stand, if they just irritated you in every way, if their theology or their rhetoric or their way of being creeped you out. There's nothing wrong with them, and they're not unsafe. You just don't like being there. So I wanted to create a character who had to make choices between feeling safe in a group of people and just being pissed off all the time. So it's a combination of her not really believing that they're trustworthy, that eventually their baser natures will out, and just feeling like an outsider and like she can't possibly belong among them. It was almost claustrophobic in a good way, in a, in a, in a, in a way that made me think when she was, you know, with Honus's wife, Jody, uh, and she was so immature and not really interesting, to, stimulating to be around. She just wanted to talk about old TV shows, and um, it really it did seem very realistic, you know? What if you were stuck with that person who really bored you to death? I'm glad she's realistic to you. Uh, Jody's one of actually the places where I accepted the most advice from my beta readers and editors because the original version of Jody was about 10 times more annoying. And I had people tell me, dial it back, dial it back. We get that you don't like her. So I'm glad that the scaled back version of Jody comes through just as strongly. Yeah, yeah. She comes through, I think, as a fully, fully developed and realistic uh, person. Um, and, and another thing that came through, I thought, was this sense of clinging to a world that no longer exists, but that's really almost all you have because everything the midwife is eating is, you know, food that, uh, non-perishables that can last, you know, months and years in gas stations. I mean, really horrible stuff. And the, the stuff they're watching, you know, they end up, you know, getting videos and able to watch old shows. But it's sort of this sense that how long can that possibly go on? You know, it's it's... It's not endless, you know. It's not. Eventually, the scavengers will run out of... I mean, even if most of the world's population is dead and there are, you know, 50 warehouses full of Twinkies, Twinkies don't last forever, and you're going to get damn sick of them even if they do. So I wanted to write about the immediate aftermath of collapse first so that people could live like scavengers for a while. But in my sequel and moving forward, I have to focus on what's sustainable and how you farm to feed a several hundred person settlement and, and how things have to adjust. So that's a whole new thing to explore, and I'm really enjoying it. So that's what you're working on now, is the sequel? I am working on the sequel, uh, tentatively titled The Book of Edda, and it picks up about 100 years after The Midwife. Wow. And have you had any uh, 12,000-word Edda session uh, bursts? I had a couple of good days at about five or 6,000 words. Um, it's harder to write when you're working full-time than it is going to college full-time. I'm not thinking in the same way, and I don't have the same kind of free time, unfortunately. But it's, it's coming along. I expect to be done with the first draft this summer. 
And and what is your writing routine? I mean, do you do it in the morning or the evening or on the way to work? I try not to be too precious about my method. Um, I spent a long time working in retail, and I used to keep a little pad of paper in my apron so that I could jot things down as they occurred to me. And that that technique is really uh, developed over the years. Like, I'll write on my cell phone if I'm riding the bus or the subway. I always have a moleskin on me. I'll email myself little snippets of things so that I can compile them later, and then I'll take time however I can get it. I prefer to have a chair and a table and my laptop. Those are the ideals, and it's, it's a bonus if I can get a cup of coffee. But I, I, I take the smallest amounts of free time I can get because I know that a day will easily line itself up so that I don't have any free time. So I think of you know those five minutes when I'm waiting for someone or I'm standing in line at Target. Those are times to write. That's great. I really admire that. Uh, I mean, I write as well. And I, if I break it up too long and I wait too long, then it's harder to get going again. So, uh, you know, a little, little break, even a five-minute chance to write sometimes just keeps the, the juice flowing. That's exactly it. It keeps it hot. Sometimes you go back to it and it's gone cold and you have to heat it up again. That's work. Yeah. So tell me, um, are, do you think there are, are you, uh, I mean, science fiction always draws lessons or, or tries to, I think, often anyway, I mean, not to be too pedagogical or pedantic, but, you know, tries to reflect back to the reader, you know, something about the way we live now that, you know, lessons we can take. And I, I, I mean, are there things that, um, um, something you'd like the reader to take about how to live in our pre-epidemic and hopefully no epidemic will happen world? Sure. Yeah, I try not to be too much of a message book, like you said, because people can tell when you're being pedantic. Although I love post-apocalyptic science fiction from the nuclear age, because that's exactly what it does. It just serves us up the horror of, of the atom bomb. But I think the thing that I wanted to come across the most strongly was to really explode notions of gender and to really think about how we perceive these things and how precariously they're balanced on something as simple as the availability of 30 pills a month. To really think about what your options would be like if you, like your grandmother, had no control over when you have children or how or by whom. Or, or for men to consider a world in which women are not plentiful or easy to find or necessarily compliant and what that would be like. Because really civilization is, it's like a game of Jenga that's nearing the end. It's based on a couple of very small things and it towers up high and it doesn't take much to knock it down. Wow. Well, those are words for us all to contemplate. So, uh, you know, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time for chatting with me. And I know that you've had a busy day today, so you're not even at home. You're, you, you had just uh, spoken to your uh, college newspaper. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I gave a speech this morning at the Daily Californian at UC Berkeley. I was brought in as a guest speaker, but it's always a pleasure to, to talk with people about my book and about science fiction and speculative fiction in general, because it's, it's the thing I love most. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and there was just today a uh, great article in the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books that's all about uh, your book and the other books that were nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. So I suggest people go check that out. They absolutely should. And it's written by a professor of women's and gender studies, which is the best kind of review I could possibly hope for. That review gets it. It's a little spoilery, though. So if you haven't read the book, you're going to find out some things you might not want to know. Uh, okay, good. Good to know. All right. So um, listen, thank you so much. I have been chatting with Meg Elison about her Philip K. Dick Award winning novel, The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. And we can all look forward to the sequel, which will hopefully be finished this summer and then come out shortly thereafter. You can listen to more podcasts at www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com. You can subscribe on iTunes or other podcasting 
apps like Stitcher. And you can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. And you can follow me, Rob Wolf, on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. And if you're interested in reading a story about time travel, you might consider picking up my book, The Alternate Universe, which is the first in the two-part series, available on Amazon. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, theme music by Michael Aaron. The editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And I plan to be speaking in the coming weeks with Ferret Steinmetz about his debut novel, Flex, and Porochista Kakpor, and hopefully I haven't mangled her name, about her book, The Last Illusion. So bye for now, and thanks for listening. <laughs>